Data-Driven Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data-driven decision-making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data-Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. All right, so thanks for joining us on the Data-Driven Podcast today. We'd like to start off by getting a bit of an understanding about how you identified the need for a product like Typeform and your journey in creating this product. Okay, so the story of Typeform is a little bit very this. It was a complete accident. We come from a design background and I ran a small design agency in Barcelona. And uh, we had a customer that needed, well, myself and my co-founder also ran another agency and we were working together at the time. Uh, he had a project for a, for a bathroom company to build uh, a form that would sit in their showcase gallery for this. It was a bathroom brand, basically. And so he brought me onto the project and uh, we built, we didn't want to build like a normal kind of plain vanilla form. So we, we tried something completely different. And that kind of was the spark that started Typhoon because after that we we decided to actually productize that idea and 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 build it into a service. But there was no kind of like, hey, nothing premeditated. We just kind of completely fell into it. Yep, just saw a need from the client. And then tell us a bit about what makes Typeform different from those things like Google Forms. I don't, I don't know if they existed at the time, but there's plenty of stuff out there that could collect survey data. But what made Typeform so different from the competitors? Well, I think, and OG, please chime in. Well, the way I saw it was at the time, I mean, we're talking about over 10 years ago, this idea of making form something less than just a mechanical, boring thing didn't really exist. So we kind of reinvented the format. You know, we had a one question at a time approach. We, we had kind of nice animation mechanics we allowed images and videos to be included within the flow so it was really we're trying to make an experience out of forms and that hadn't been done before i think that's really the story of why we actually got the initial traction that we did because now many other players in, in in the industry are doing very similar things to us but we we definitely were, were, were the first at least SaaS product to do that i think we're we're on a long-term trend where technology becomes just more human, more accessible, it feels like it's built for us. I think for a very long time, software specifically, but technology in general, has felt like, you know, we had to adapt to it, right? I don't think that's long-term success for us. I think David and the founding story he has is one of the pioneers of making that realization and using design as a way to bring something that's super fundamental to websites and the internet to adapt to humans, to feel human. You know, type forms make people feel like they're having a conversation. And that's remarkable because really it's just pixels on the website. And, uh, but it simulates something human. And, you know, with some of the things we're working on, it's we even push that to the next level. So I feel like there's something, you know, I say all the time, Technology for humans, not humans for technology. And I think that's, you know, part of a superpower for really great software companies. That was definitely something when we first started Typeform. We, we had a slogan, which was make things a little more human, which is, was the crying call for like making forms more human, let's say. 
Right, because it's an experience that people don't uh, exactly get excited about generally. No, and I wouldn't. Pret- I don't want to pretend either that like uh, <laughs> you know people are like wow, super excited about type forms now or any type form because you know nowadays people are just more used to it. But it was a far cry from what you know from what it was or what it can be, right? Especially if you have to go through multiple questions, it can get quite tedious if there's just, you know, it's just like filling in blank spaces. So, you know, if you, if you go one question at a time mechanic, it kind of feels like more like a natural conversation and that's just more human by, by nature, essentially. So exactly. So full disclosure, I'm a fan of the product. I use it regularly. Our company story IQ uses it. So I'm pretty familiar with it for our listeners that haven't uh, experienced type form, they may have unwittingly experienced it. It simplifies the process, right? So it's one question at a time, big text, visually appealing, and makes the process feel a lot less overwhelming. So to me, now that you guys built the product, it seems obvious that this is better, but how were you data informed or just informed generally in knowing that this was a good idea and then continuing to refine it and being data informed or data driven in that process of building a great product? I can start and then OG want to follow up with more kind of reasons. So, well, to be completely honest, we, we, we built Typeform on a, on, on a whim. And as I mentioned, we actually built, built it for a customer. So we didn't do any customer research or ethnographic research to know that, you know, whether we should build a better, a better, more interactive form. We just did it because that was the necessity that this client had at the time. Um, and then we just saw that this could be like really, really huge because, you know, no one's really improved web forms, but everyone's, you know, creating really, really amazing websites, you know, with animations with, you know, at the time CSS3 had just come out, so you could do a lot more and, but, but forms were just untouched. So we knew that, you know, intuitively that there was something there to chase. So literally the only validation that we did is once we had the form built, we did a little bit of testing out in the field. It was just one day where we were recording some videos of people, you know, playing around and that was it. We launched the product and it just went off. Of course, as time went by, you know, um, you know, we started getting like a lot of qualitative feedback and then, you know, that obviously helped us shape the product. And then, you know, looking at more quantitative data when we started getting more scale. But you know, maybe OG can talk a bit more because you know, he's chief product officer, and now we're dealing with massive amounts of data to inform decisions from day to day. So, yeah, so I think that we, you know, once you build the mousetrap, which is conversational forms, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Now you have to create them. So we have a no code creation experience that makes it accessible to everyone in the world. I mean, my daughter has this type form, so, you know, and she said, I think she created that account when she was 11 years old, which is both inspiring but also concerning. Making this really Sorry, what did you say? I'm being on TikTok, I guess. <laughs> so making this accessible to people is a huge part of the magic. And um, part of that is the principle, I think, at type form, the simplicity thing, which I'm a big believer in, I, I continue. But, you know, as we've, peel the onion of doing this, we've also added powerful workflows, you know, allowing people to chain questions, to refine questions, to branch between questions and so on and so forth. And so a lot of that has to do with listening. You know, once you have the first success, and this is important for founders, is you now have to listen for 
how to improve it, how in which direction to take it to make it even better for the people you really care about using it. And so clearly to build the business that we have, we have done a lot of that listening, but it never stops. You know, one of my big focus points is how do we do this even more and more? How do we sort the signal from the noise? How do we generate insight in new areas we want to invest? And, in? you know, it's endless, but also very rewarding uh, practices. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So some of the products or features that you've maybe added since the initial basic form and how you've been data informed in uh, designing and rolling out those features. Yes. So here's one, right? Once we figured out conversational forms and people thought this is a better experience, this is probably going to get me better responses, then we said getting adopted by the people who cared about the experience for their customers, and they turned out to be marketers, talk, talk, you know, totally in brand-driven companies. They care about the experiences their customers go through, including on their websites. And so we had to learn a lot about embedding ourselves into those websites, right, which was a demand from those customers. But even more subtle, we had to learn a lot about how those people wanted to show up beyond the conversation. So what's the branding elements? within those forms. So being able for people to easily place their brands, to change font size, to change the spacing, you know, potentially even typography. And so all those things were informed by customer feedback, by experiments and data, you know, to make those decisions and make them well. Maybe as you could talk about the experiments that we run all continuously on type four, like the initiatives. In terms of like, yeah, in, in, in each product, six-week product cycle, we have various experiments that we run. Right, right. So what we've done recently is we've instituted a, a development process we call TypeOp, where teams make bets based on customer insight and understanding of what they want to do. Now, a bet can be full bore, which is we understand exactly what customers want because we've either talked to them or a previous experiment worked. A bet could be a quick experiment. One of the recent ones we, we did was, um, you know, we're rolling out a multi-language feature so that you can use one form to target multiple languages, which is a big request for us. But we didn't know how deep to go down that rabbit hole. And so we released some initial things that came from customer feedback, tested in the market in terms of adoption, in terms of just conversion and excitement. And then, you know, we could, you know, invest in it a little more. And so every team is usually experimenting on something so they can either double down on it or they can know enough not to do it at all or to maybe stop because it's enough, that kind of thing. And all these experiments are measured to see if, they're, if, they're, if they significantly move the needle enough. And if they, if they do, then obviously they're pushed forward. Otherwise, you know, they're either iterated on or, or dropped entirely. Cool. Can you tell us a bit about the experiment design, how you ensure that the experiment's going to be robust and you're going to be able to draw a sensible conclusion from it? Yeah, I don't know that this is particularly special. We come up with a hypothesis and then we try to figure out the metrics we use to prove or disprove it. And then we come up with the test itself. Like, what does it look like uh, in order to to prove it, like what is the minimum investment that tells us one way or the other so that we can get the metrics needed to do that. I think this is pretty standard. Um, and then we have experimentation systems, you know, I think 
I don't know the names that we have, but you know, I'm sure people use things like Split or something else. And then it tells us it, it once we launch it and pass it through the, the, the top of our funnel, um, it tells us very quickly based on the metrics we want what I say significant uh, level of customers first of all, but also a significant level of confidence in the test metric that we should rely on it or not. And then we once we do that, we match up the uh, hypothesis with the results. And sometimes because you can only see data and not intent, if there are weird questions that are still open that are not easily caught in the in the uh, metric, we'll do some follow-up interviews so we can divine intent versus just behavior. Cool. How often do you do focus groups and user feedback in that more manual way? Constantly. I mean, there are two specific ways. One is you know, discovery is different from listening. Discovery is when we know there's a big space, a big problem to be solved, a workflow that we want to get better. And then we dig into that with discovery, which is really mostly interviews. And that's the way you have to do it. But there's also listening, which is we're listening to churn feedback. We're listening to uh, MPS verbatims to either know that what we did was satisfactory or to spot problems that spur further discovery. And then finally, this one that I talked about is using that, that those conversations to conform metrics-driven experiments. So one of the mistakes growth teams make is that they just look at metrics and they don't look at intent. And so whenever you can, you want to do spot checks and interviews to see if what you think is going on in people's heads, given their click stream, is actually what is happening. Do you have any stories or instances where the metrics didn't line up with the user feedback and the anecdotes you were hearing from customers. I know stories of the metrics not lining up to what we expected. That <laughs> mm, they would be really interesting. I'd love to hear that. I think that's rare. I think usually, what you usually find is that the hypothesis is off. And then the interviews help you form a new hypothesis or come to a new understanding. Because a hypothesis can be tested, but if that itself is not correct, then you have multiple problems breaking, breaking in. The, so that's why you have to choose your hypothesis correctly. One specific thing that we rediscovered through some experimentation this year is that our feature set is separate from our response limits, right? They're two different things. And understanding how people perceive both things, like what features matter to me and how many responses do I need to satisfy my need is quite separate for customers. And this comes through in data research, but also comes through when you start asking them about their use cases. You know, if someone is putting a high traffic marketing form in their site and they get 100,000 visitors a month and, you know, they need some features, but also need some response. Um, so really making sure you, you tease it out and think not think it's one thing and not offering it as potentially one thing has been an important realization we've rediscovered this year. When you say responses, is this really a, a billing thing? Like how many responses they're able to collect for a given cost? Yeah. How, how many, what do you, what do you think you need? You need a million? You need a mm. million? Is it completely unlimited and it's completely unpredictable, in which case you just want to make sure there's a buffer, et cetera? How do people think about it? Is it a painful thing? Is it a thing that makes them anxious and so on and so forth? By the way, if you want to patch this, this in later, um, Ross, for example, of 
you know, data going against our own intuition. So one example was we, we made a change which was kind of an anti-design pattern in the, in the form experience on mobile. Uh, and it actually... Sorry, what's an anti-design pattern? Quick example, like the buttons were put on the left-hand side as, a, as apart from the right-hand side, the navigation buttons, and generally you look left to right on, on, on a side. So we, sw- we swapped those around. I don't know if a designer was involved in that decision, but an experiment was run with that. And uh, it turned out that there was a little bit of an uplift in, uh, in, in completion rate, which actually didn't make much sense, but, but it was. But I, we, I, don't think, I can't remember if we stuck with that decision, but I clearly remember like, like jumping in and kind of interfering, saying this, this doesn't make sense from a design perspective. Just because we have a tiny little uplift and, and something so far away from the actual change, but still it had an uplift, doesn't mean we should do it. Because if you, this is how I kind of think about data. I think you should be informed by data, but you shouldn't be you know, totally obsessed or overly driven by data because sometimes you just have to make good decisions from the gut. And if, you, if data is making that for you all the time, then you, 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 you're not, that will compound into actually a worse product in my opinion, because you are not really feeling the experience as it should be. And this is a classic thing, right? This is a classic experience, which is the data tells you something that you can't explain humanly, right? And the only way to do it is if you, you have to ask, you have to ask a sample, what, what, what is really going on? And so I think this is the conundrum of just data-driven experimentation is what is a human narrative that makes sense? Because everything is backed by a human behaving a certain way and that you're aggregating that through data. And so this is why experimentation needs to go beyond data uh, often for you to do, understand the why. All you see is the what. But if you don't understand the why, you can actually make the wrong decision. Did you ever get to the why in this case? Why there's this counterintuitive result of the anti-design option being preferred? Honestly, no idea. <laughs> it's like a mystery. It's, it's like the same thing. I guess the same equation that sometimes you present a bad design and actually for some reason it performs better. <laughs> I've, I've come across things like that. But, you know, we're a company that really is design driven more than anything. Um, and, and so that's our, our thing, right? So if we just always follow the data the whole time then, and, and not prioritize design, then we're not staying true to our, our DNA. But you know, other companies will just optimize the hell out of things. I mean, look at booking, <laughs> for example. Right? It's not a beautiful thing, but it's, it's, it's optimized the hell out of. You know? There are much better looking or even more user-friendly sites potentially, but they have figured out that that works best for them. And that's based on just a lot of experimentation. I don't know if your users know about that company, but they... They're one of the top companies in terms of data experimentation. Uh, say it again. I, I'm not sure I'm familiar with it. Booking.com. Oh, booking.com, the travel site. Booking. Yeah, yeah. I use it all the time, yeah. Yeah, everyone does. <laughs> yeah, the travel site. The optimization is working. But, you know, beyond that, if you look at Facebook or any of these at-scale consumer companies, they're constantly, they're constantly doing experiments at scale. I did that at Twitter. And the way we do experiments is very analytical. Um, sometimes we don't know why things work. And, but because they work, we just do them anyway. At least we deploy them for some time. Just to add, if you look at a company like Airbnb, 
it's a great user experience. I'm sure they run a lot of experiments, but they have designed at the core and it actually creates a better experience, which supports their brand, right? Booking.com, probably if it looked all nice and fancy like Airbnb, it wouldn't work. It's just people, it, I think uh, Booking.com is kind of the meat and two vegetables of, of travel sites. And that, that creates a certain level of trust. But Airbnb are going after a different thing. So design is their thing, and I'm, but I'm sure they're being data um, informed at the same time. Just not data obsessed, I would say. That's a great way of putting it. So in this particular case, you decided not to follow the data, if you like, and stick with your own instincts and intuition and knowledge about good design. I can't remember the final outcome of that, um, but... It was just a, an example, and I've, I've come across numerous examples like this where, where you know, we try something and maybe a designer like pushes back, but it gets it gets experimented with anyway, and and the data supports it. But that doesn't mean that we should do it just because the data supports it, because then we're being you know we're being user centric. We're thinking, okay, that's a bit counterintuitive to say that because the data should tell you what the users want. But I I, I feel that if you're constantly chasing the data, then you're going to miss something which will compound essentially across all your product, which is you don't really, you're not really thinking about the human experience behind that. You're just looking at, you know, ch checking boxes, how many people like manage to hit the goal that you want them to do so that they convert essentially. But I think, you know, experience is kind of harder to measure in, in, in that sense. It's something that you feel, you need to talk to people about how they feel whilst they use a product which is more difficult. You can't really measure that so well, let's say, with quantitative data. And that kind of brings us full circle to how you started the business, right? It's based on discussion with a client, based on, I guess we never finished that story in the sense of how did you know that it was time to pivot your business from an agency to going, wow, we've really got something here. We need to scale this new type of form. In our case, we had been speaking about we're so fed up of, you know, having clients. We wanted customers. We wanted to stop. We were tired of making puddles in ponds. We wanted to make waves in the sea. So we were kind of like with our ears peaked to see if anything would, you know, cross our attention. And just this form thing just came on our plates. And we said, ah, that's the thing. Um, so, yeah, they, they, that, like I said, it was just a completely organic process. Nice. So it kind of kind of rounds it out nicely where a lot of the success of your business has come not from hardcore data analysis, but looking at different types of data like user feedback, discussion with customers, and that that's served you well throughout your journey. But of course, as you've grown, as you've got access to more data, you've started doing more and more experiments as well. But it sounds like your philosophy is never losing sight of what made the business successful in the first place, which is talking to customers. Yeah, I just think, I think a product you start with you start it with people, and so initially it's very few people. So you can't you're not going to see much in the data at those low levels. So I at Typeform we have multiple products. I, uh, OG runs the main product, which is Typeform, and I run a lab where we've released a few products. One's called Video Ask, which is a video-driven uh, form tool, uh, well, async data collection tool, uh, and another product which I'm working on now, which is called Formless, um, which is an AI-driven form product. And we can get into the details, but the point I wanted to make was 
both those products were, were kind of conceived in the same way as, as Typeform. It would be like, hey, wouldn't, you know, we've done forms with text. Wouldn't it be more even human to put people in the form? So that's the win. And based on that, we built something and we put it in front of people, got feedback and built it with, we actually created a Slack community around video ads at the beginning. And we were just building the product. We're just talking to people, essentially. That was our, our source. And formless, yeah, more or less, you know, similar process, you know, on a whim. What if forms could be fully conversational where they don't just ask questions, but they can respond to you. So if you have a question about the business during a form, you can ask back and the AI will, 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 will answer back to you. So, you know, based on that, that, that intuition, we also built that and now we're validating it with customers, you know, we're constantly in interviews and, you know, obviously talking to people constantly. So can I, can I, I want to I make a quick comment on something that I feel like is super important to your audience, but also just in general, the product industry. You know, I, I, it's funny, Typeform is sort of a meld of these two things. A lot of the ideas for great products maybe in the last 30 years or so, have been inspirational. Hey, what if? But the truth of that way of, of creating a company is that there's a lot of failure in this, right? And it's hard to see. We see a lot of the confirmation bias of the things that succeeded, but there's a lot of failure because being strictly inspirational doesn't, I guess, anticipate if, whether or not a million people care about the thing that you're inspired about, right? or a billion people care about the thing that you're inspired about. And I think a lot of the last 15 years of creating products with data has been about making this more disciplined, more precise, uh, really anchoring it on what customers want, what they need, if there's a big TAM or not. But what I've found is that that version of how to build products is incremental and can be quite uninspired. And it's good at refining things. What people need is both things. They need to be inspired, but they also need to be customer-focused and data-driven at the same time. And one without the other doesn't quite work. It's like two sides of the same coin. Uh, some people think one coin is more important than the other coin, but really you need both. Like I keep telling people that if we had, OpenAI had been just about customer feedback and data, they would never have built the thing that they built. They had to be curious. They had to be inspired. And then we put it in front of customers, first of all, as an API, and no one cared very much. But once it became chat GPT and accessible, then it blew up, and 100 million people signed up in, in, in three months. So there's inspiration in product, and then there's data in product, and you need both. I guess the question is like the sequencing, right? When do you start getting, you know, it's a spectrum, right? When do you start getting, you know, when does the needle go more towards trying to get like deeper data on things versus just trying to get things out the door right. and, and getting and I think that's a judgment call sometimes, right? Um, but you, I, I just, I think it's hard to do one without the other. Any tips on sequencing and balancing those competing needs inspired versus logical and data driven? David, what do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's a hard one because my background is in design. So if I have an idea, the first thing I want to do is just design it and then put it in front of customers, right? Um, if you are 
you know, more of an, of an analyst, then what you're going to do is you're going to go towards like market research and talking to, you've got an idea, but you need to talk to, to people to kind of validate it. So it depends, right? I wouldn't want to uh, prescribe anything. I just said that my, that, that's my approach. Like I, I, I think of an idea or we think of an idea and, and we kind of riff on that, get excited about it, drop it if we're not excited anymore, but some ideas stick and then you just can't get rid of them. And then you start like imagining what they would look like or feel like. And eventually you do a quick prototype and put that in front of your peers. And then, you know, slowly but surely that becomes an actually we're suddenly building this product. And so, you know, if I have to go back to formless, it was, you know, more or less like that, right? OG, we, we, we felt there was a Yeah, we, we had a... Sorry, can I stop you for a sec? Uh, formless sounds really interesting. Can you give us a brief overview on what that product is? Yeah, so, so Formless is a new product that we started playing with, well, the idea back in February of this year. The idea was that, you know, what's the next, what's the next evolution in, in, in Forms for Typeform? Um, so Typeform is kind of a guided script. You go through questions. You can create logic steps so that you can, based on what someone says, you can go to one place or the other. But obviously, that's pretty limited because you can't just go to unlimited places. Um, so, you know, what if we could make a, uh, a form experience that uh, would actually feel like a, a, a full-on conversation? So based on what you say, the AI would react. So if the form started with like, hey, fella, what's, what's your name? I could say, hey, why do you want to know my name? And it would answer, hey, I need your name because I need you to register you for this. You couldn't really do that in in type form without a lot of logic. But this comes out of the box because it's AI, right? You're just interacting with a language model. So you can create a form that responds to you but and asks you questions because you give it a set requirements of things to ask for. But it also allows the respondent that's that's taking the that's answering the form to actually ask questions back as well. So for example, if they want to know something about the business, they can ask back in the form and interrupt the flow of questions to do that. And the AI will answer back because it's been trained on the data you've given it essentially. So it's it's kind of the equivalent of me telling you, hey Dom, I need to go out into the street and I want you to talk to a bunch of people. I need you to get their name, their email, what they think about X, Y, Z. And then you'll go out in the street and you'll have a bunch of conversations which will take a bunch of different forms, right? It won't be like the questions might be asked in a different order. People might ask you questions back and so forth. So it's completely kind of flexible in that, in that, in that sense. But at the end of it, just like the Typhoon product, you end up with structured data because we take the conversation and we extract based on the requirements you've given for the conversation, we extract that data into a data table, which can then be queried. We're building like analytics tools to kind of query these. So, so yeah, that's that's the the, the <laughs> maybe long-winded explanation, but essentially it's AI-driven forms, uh, conversational forms that don't just ask, but they also answer, respond. Very cool. So uh, it's still got my predefined questions with a predefined structure where I'll get my structured output, just like any normal type form. It's even simpler that you give it a prompt, like I want to create a registration form for my blog event. Yeah. 
Based on that, it will generate a welcome screen and, and a call to action. And then you define what are the things that you want to collect. And so you don't have to write the questions out. You should, could just say, hey, uh, do, you have a, is it, do you have a dog? Uh, name, email, food preferences for your dog, any allergies? And based on these kind of key phrases, the AI will form the questions as need be and also will riff with you based on the answers that you give. So if you say, uh, hey, I have a, a, a Labrador, it will say back to you, oh, Labradors are fun dogs, but a little bit messy, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So you can also control tone of voice so they exaggerate these things. But essentially, yeah, it's like having a person asking the questions for you. Uh, cool. So it's an AI-powered experience for the person creating the form and the person filling out the form. Exactly. 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 Okay. And in terms of giving it the right background information, so I presume it uses something like GPT-4 in the back end, At the moment, right? 3.5. Well, we use some 4, 3.5. 3.5. Okay. So if I'm setting up a form, how do I make sure it doesn't draw on that full universe of knowledge GPT-5 has been trained on and just uses the knowledge of my yeah, business? So, so typically AI models can hallucinate. So the more context you give, the better. So we have a feature that allows you to either write snippets of information in or, or just paste the URL of your website and we'll, we'll crawl through your, your, whole, your whole website. We'll vectorize all the information so that when users have questions, we can pull in the right pull out the right information and the AI will just, just talk it out. Now let me, can, I add, can I add something that's sort of subtle in what David said? When you... Uh, one of our key customers are people who generate leads, right? basically um, in various ways. They say, hey, you're a customer on my website or some other website I'm affiliated with. Here's a thing to tell me about yourself and to get this benefit or just tell me about yourself. And then they're filling their information. And then that information goes back into me. I'm the proprietor of something. And then I use that to decide if I want to invite you in the door or if I want to reach out to you and say, so it's very classic and it's repeated across the economy a million times every day. Um, the thing about the power of formulas that is unobvious is that the form itself can be your first level um, pre-sales engineer or, or salesperson, right? Because not only does it, it's, it's like a human being. So what, what do human beings do? If like I'm pitching you, to contribute to a cancer charity, the natural thing for you to do is to ask me, well, what is this cancer charity about? Not just, I'm not just want to give you my name. I'm like, tell me about it. What does it do? Who, what is the, are the stories of the kids you've helped? And those, that's what's convincing. This is what salespeople do, right? And so, honestly, formless is not just a way to collect information in a pleasant way, conversational. It's a salesperson. It will tell the person more context about your business, about what you're trying to accomplish, and convince them and engage them. It, it can basically take a human out of this whole thing. And I think that's fairly powerful. So rather than trying to collect lots of data, like a typical form, the goal might be just get their email address so a salesperson can follow them up, or even, could it even be like, get their credit card details, get them to make a purchase? That's a classic goal, get their email address so someone can follow up. But now it's following up. Right in the moment, because what people where we see is that people will enter their email address and they keep asking, they keep talking. You can stop the conversation there, but a lot of people keep talking and asking, "Well, what do you do next? What's happening? Does this satisfy my need?" And you're like, "Oh, it does in this specific way." 
And so it's, quali- it's qualifying the lead essentially. Qualifying the lead. It's, it's warming the lead. Okay, that wraps up this episode of the Data Driven Podcast. One link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes listening to this podcast, head over to Data Driven Pod where we've got summaries of all our episodes and contact information for our guests. And of course, you can always reach out to me directly. My handle on Twitter is at Bohan Dominic. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a steady stream of data-driven inspiration in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes each week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app. We'll be back in your feed tomorrow. That's all for today. But until next time, remember, when it comes to data, less is more.